Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. All right. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, this is Ethan Nickturn. Welcome back to the Road Home Podcast. I'm here again with my dear friend, Shelly Tugelski, who is an amazing person. She's been on the podcast once before, but actually we've already had this conversation once before. We are re-recording this podcast to discuss her wonderful new book, uh, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Um, we had a really amazing conversation um, that now just exists between us because we had a recording mishap. Um, Shelly's had a lot of mishaps with her book coming out um, and is handling them as a as a real beacon of spiritual practice. So we're re-recording this conversation um, and probably going to just have a different conversation that will hopefully just be as interesting. But Shelly, welcome. Welcome back to the Road Home podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to see you twice in one month. <laughs> I know. Um, it's great to see you too. I, I engineered the mishap just so we'd have to do it again, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. So where should we, uh, where should we start? I mean, there's a, there's a, I want to start where we started the last conversation. So your, your new book, sit down to rise up, which, you know, maybe I'll bring in the thread where we got to at the end of the conversation, which is, you have this really unique blend in your life experience, one of, of your life experience, your, your religious and, you know, just lived experience and spiritual experience. But then these other three elements really have come up for me whenever I think of you, um, your, your really deep kind of spiritual practice and, and spiritual experience and how you became a meditation teacher and a, a real meditation and Dharma leader, um, your early experience in the corporate world. And and then also, what a badass activist um, you are and have become. And so just want to, uh, Shelly has, um, well, if you read some mainstream media, maybe right now, this isn't the best blurb anywhere, but but this is my favorite blurb anywhere right now. The, the, the front page of her book says, Shelly Tegelski is saving people's lives and giving them hope, um, which is President Joe Biden. Um, not, not the previous guy, president Joe Biden. <laughs> so that that's kind of an amazing blurb to have on your book. So, yeah. um, and that's mainly due to your activist work that, that you made that connection. And, um, so where should we start? I, we talked the last time that you were on the podcast about your kind of spiritual origin story, but there are some pieces of the memoir part of this book that I didn't know about, like the fact that you went blind. Mm. Yeah, That's where it starts. Yeah, that is that is definitely um, what brought me back to the cushion. Um, I definitely learned how to, you know, how to meditate. I had the fundamental tools that I learned when I was in grad school um, in the late 90s here in New York. And, um, you know, I, I slowly fell away from practice once I got married and got a job and had a child and, you know, you sort of, your life becomes full with other things and you learn to really become a caretaker first and self-care taker is kind of like something that gets pushed onto the back burner, you know, if there's time for it. Um, and I was going through a really terrible divorce. Um, all divorces are terrible, of course, even if they're amicable and I wasn't taking care of myself. I had really sort of disconnected from my community, uh, from a lot of people that, you know, were my friends, sort of my MO is to um, just retreat, you know, I sort of retreat in like a hermit crab when I'm uh, in, in a dark place. I just kind of tend to go to an even darker place, which is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do sometimes. Um, and I woke up one morning um, when I was um, just 27 years old. My son was two years old at the time and I was blind, could not see a thing. And thank God that back then we had Nokia phones because I could actually feel 
where the numbers were. And I was able to get to my phone and feel the phone number. And we also remembered phone numbers back then too. So that was a good thing. I was able to remember the phone number for my, for one of my best friends. And I called her and she came to pick me up and, you know, we took my son to school uh, and it was just really scary, you know, getting to the ophthalmologist and sitting in that office. And it's, it was like a parade of ophthalmologists coming in because one would see me and then say, this is very interesting, which you never want to hear from a doctor. Well, this is very interesting. Uh, Dr. So-and-so, you need to come in and take a look at this, you know, and it, it just became like this spectacle. And I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called uveitis, which is an auto, you know, autoimmune condition, meaning that like, especially when you're stressed out, when your body's stressed out, you have flare-ups and the disease does not have a cure. Um, there are ways to sort of go into remission, but um, as luck would have it, I'm also like really allergic. I mean, anaphylactic shock allergic to the medications that uh, could do that for me. So um, I eventually got my vision restored uh, using uh, prednisone shots directly into my eyeballs. And I've probably had about 30 of those already in each eye since I was diagnosed. And I've had with several your, With surgeries. your eyes open, right? Yep. With my eyes open, needles coming right at you and you can't even flinch or move. So talk about totally using your breathing exercises in that moment to just get into, send yourself off into another place, completely get calm, not flinch, not move, and just, you know, continue to breathe. Because if you stop breathing, then you're like, that's, that's a bad place to go. You start to like tense up, you know? Um, and yeah, so I, I actually am now visually impaired in my left eye. I was told by my doctor at the time that I would be blind by the time I was 40. And the vision impairment in my left eye didn't actually happen until two years ago. So I was 42. Um, and when somebody tells you something like that, when they give you a timeline, you know, when they tell you like you have a terminal illness or you're going to be blind or you're going deaf or suddenly you really appreciate and, you know, things in a completely different way. Uh, you make use of the time that you have, uh, whether it is to be alive or the time you have to be able to see certain things, right. And really pick up on the details that you might take for granted every single day, because you just take for granted that, you know, you have sight and that you could see and that you've always been able to see. And so, you know, in a quest to try to, um, get myself into a state of remission and to stave off eye loss or vision loss, I, I, you know, changed my diet. I came back to the cushion to start to meditate and man, I didn't, I have to be honest with you, Ethan. I didn't like what I discovered at all about myself. I was in a really messed up place. Um, and you know, here I thought, and you and I talked about this the last time, like I thought, oh, I'm going to sit down and meditate and feel more, um, like I'll feel better. I'll feel more comfortable with myself. And rather all I was doing day after day was sitting with extreme pain and discomfort. And, you know, this discomfort and pain that I was sort of com compartmentalizing and putting away for so many years for, for a, a, a myriad of reasons. Um, and, and I learned to just sort of fit with that discomfort and, um, exist with it, coexist with it, and recognize that this too is a part of who I am. That, that you know, it is, it is part of my makeup. And that if I'm going to try to heal it, I have to really um, identify it and get in there and get dirty, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I may very well, you know, still, very, it's a possibility that I won't be able to see one day still. Uh, obviously, technology and advances and, you know, medical uh, resources are are changing every single day. So who knows? But I, I live my life as if that is this thing that's going to happen because it forces me to to do things uh, very differently than than what my previous default mode would have been.
<laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder, I mean, I have some thoughts, conversations with other people who, who discovered or rediscovered their practice in times of either like really deep physical or, or um, emotional discomfort. But what is it that, what do you think kept you coming back day after day to actually being willing to do that? Like, yeah. Um, like to, to actually sit with the discomfort, like to actually make that choice. I think that a couple of things, I think, first of all, the, the, I was desperate mm-hmm. because there really wasn't anything else that was available to me. And, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to go to therapy. And, um, at that time, you know, single mom, one income. And I also think that it was like this realization that I wasn't the person that I wanted to be for my son. Mm. And I tell my son that all the time, you know, he's like, "Uh," you know, because he's 19 now. But I always say like, you know, and I tell him, I'm like, you know, in many ways, like you saved me, like having you saved me from myself. And he doesn't really can't wrap his head around that yet. You know, uh, maybe one day he'll be able to, but, um, but really that was it. You know, you look at your kid and you say like, they deserve so much more than this version of me mm-hmm. that I've become. Um, and I want to really try to be the best version that I could be for them and show up for them in a, in a different way. And, and I, I, I couldn't even show up for myself. So I realized like, you know, I have to show up for myself even if it's really uncomfortable and it sucks. And what other options do I have? Not none. I can't take any medications. You know, I, I, no one's coming to save me. I have to save myself. Yeah. And if I don't do that, then, you know, where is it going to leave my kid? Right. 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 Um, It's very powerful. Um, So I don't know. Do you call yourself an activist? Some people don't like that term at all, but clearly your life has become marked by service work, let's say, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have an issue with the terms activists. I've been called a self-care activist, so I sort of have adopted that term as well. I sort of like that moniker. Um, I... I would say that if I had to uh, call myself anything, I would say I'm a good Samaritan. I'm a person who just shows up, right? I have this moral obligation and I heed the call. Yeah, yeah. So it's what the degree to which you're willing to show up and also, you know, how much you kind of inspire other people, you know, I mean, had the quote from President Biden, the foreword of your book is written by Chelsea Handler. (laughs) You clearly have this ability to bring people together. And, you know, you I know you've done political activist work, meaning electoral politics. Yeah. But really, I think, you know, what you're known now and what you chose to be known by uh, for this book is the founder of the pandemic of love. So Mm. that was we, we got to that later in our uh, erased conversation, but I'm wondering if we can get to that a little bit sooner uh, in this conversation. So can you just revisit how Pandemic of Love came about? Yeah. So it's interesting because if you watch like the footage from, you know, CNN Heroes last year, it made it seem like uh, this woman was sitting around her kitchen table uh, and didn't know what to do. She was in despair. So she just created these two forms and boom, this like global movement was fun. This woman being you. Yes. (laughs) And it was just like, it's a nice story that they tell, right? They sort of gloss over a lot of the details. And so- Are you you saying mainstream media packages narrative (laughs) in a certain way to sort of make it more palatable to their own desire for a certain mode of storytelling? Shockingly, yes. It's shocking, yeah. Exactly what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah, but there's a backstory. You know, the backstory is that actually uh, Pandemic of Love, which is a global now, a global mutual aid organization uh, that is very grassroots. We're not a nonprofit. We're all volunteer led. Um, 
you know, the, the, the kind of roots of it, the seeds of it started uh, four years earlier. Uh, I had started a meditation community accidentally, really. It was totally inadvertently. Like I never set out to do that. I was still working full time for a corporation. And, um, but I wanted community. And so I, I invited a few friends to come meditate with me in Hollywood Beach, Florida. And we started out with a group of 12. And within six months, we, we had 800 people like meditating with us on Sunday mornings. Um, and it was, it was pretty incredible to sort of, to watch it grow. I eventually that summer wound up uh, quitting my job, leaving the corporate world for good. Um, thinking I would go teach meditation in the corporate world. Um, but then the election happened and that's how I got into activism. But that being said, like as the community sort of grew larger and larger and larger, and we, you know, wound up having 3000 people in our community and then 4,000, then 5,000 people in our community, I realized I, I have this responsibility to use my platform for other things, Right. I mean, and I know that a lot of meditation teachers especially may not agree with that, right? They kind of like stay away from, from politics. Um, but there were a lot of things happening in our community. You know, the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, which really affected, the, even though it happened in Orlando, you know, there's a connection between Orlando and, and South Florida. And that, that was really uh, hit very close to home. We were having of course, hurricanes um, more frequently. Um, and so, as you know, when uh, when natural disasters happen, uh, there's an uptick in, in mutual aid and, and the need to sort of help each other. Um, and and there, so there were all of these sort of events that were happening. Then the election happened and the Women's March, which I was really involved in. And then the Parkland shooting happened uh, in February of 2018. So you know, I just kept being thrust onto this like soapbox reluctantly at first. And then really I realized it's not that reluctant. Like I, I feel very comfortable in this space and I feel comfortable explaining to people like where I'm coming from. And I'm also willing to listen to other individuals explain where they're coming from and to try to have those conversations, right? Which I know is very rare in these times. Um, and has gotten rarer and rarer. But we started to basically, you know, in a very informal way, like somebody would come to me in the community and say, I lost my job. And I happened to know that this other person was hiring. So I would like make a shidduch, you know, I would create a, I would be a matchmaker. I'd just like introduce people to each other. And this, this woman, you know, uh, who was a senior, couldn't drive anymore on Sunday morning. So she was stopped coming to meditation. And I noticed that she wasn't coming anymore. So I called her up and I said, what's going on? And she told me. And so somebody else that was living in her neighborhood was able to drive her on Sunday mornings. And so we started sort of that way, you know, by just connecting people, people in need with people who could fill that need and, and just creating that direct connection. Uh, and then it became also like financial in times certain times of the year, you know, back to school, uh, the holiday season, of course. And like I said, after something like a natural disaster, like a hurricane, um, you know, we would help people beforehand with hurricane prep, like to help uh, uh, fill their fridge with food. And we would help afterwards with things like money for gas and generators and things like that. So, so I already sort of had this spreadsheet, this elaborate spreadsheet on uh, Google uh, Share Drive, and it, but it was like not accessible to everyone. It was like this closed circuit just for our community where people could go in and they could say, oh, I, I have extra time. I could donate to this. Let me see who needs my time. Let me see who needs me to mow their lawn. Let me see who needs me to walk their dog. And so we started, you know, really creating this beautiful, hyper-local, communal safety net um, that everybody sort of contributed to. And it was really beautiful because what happened was, is that it really made everybody in our community feel like every single person, regardless of their socioeconomic status, had something that they could offer and that every person had something that they needed, right? Mm -hmm. And that we could create this beautiful sort of web, weave this web that was able to um, 
that was able to 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 act as that safety net for everyone and create this beautiful uh, transference of wealth. And um, I know that that you know just hearing that terminology makes a lot of people cringe, especially if you have a lot of money. You think, what? Transfer my wealth to who? Redistribute wealth? Um, Why do you think that makes sense? People who already have, like, if I had, like, 10 pounds of rice and you said, we're going to take half pound of your rice, yeah, that wouldn't make me cringe. That'd be like, sure, here's some rice. You know, like, why? Because people have a hoarding mentality. I think you, you witness it. If you've ever been on a cruise or, like, you know, or to a buffet or to like a bar mitzvah and the Venetian table comes out (laughs) or after Yom Kippur, when you fast, that's the perfect analogy, actually. After Yom Kippur, like good luck trying to get to like that nosh smorgasbord with like, you know, the bagels and the lox and the schmear, like you will get mowed over by like every person with a walker and you, you know, forget it. And people wind up filling up 17 plates as if they have 17 stomachs, right? And they wind up eating one plate of food. Mm -hmm. And so it's this mentality, like, you know, my mom used to say, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And that's true. You know, I think for for many people, we have this like hoarding mentality and we operate from from a place of scarcity as opposed to from a place of like uh, abundance, like I have enough and understanding like where your enough threshold is. Um, and so, you know, one of the chapters in my book is called enough is a feast. Mm-hmm. And that's really my mantra. Enough is a feast. It's like, if everybody just had enough, you know, if we could just get, make sure that everybody started at that same baseline and everybody had their basic needs met to the point of enough, imagine like what the world would look like. It would look completely mm-hmm. different. And that's really what mutual aid is designed to do is to make sure that anybody that has excess of enough could give to somebody who doesn't have enough of whatever that is, whether it's time or data or money or whatever it is. And so, so fast forward, March of 2020, I was sitting around my kitchen table. Now that you have this backstory and, uh, I saw what was coming, you know, uh, of course, Florida, uh, God, there's so many things we could say about Florida. Oh, Florida. Uh, we could do a whole, we could do a whole podcast series, uh, called a man in Florida. If there, there isn't already one that exists, um, but <laughs> it's its own realm of samsara. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it really is. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, I was, I was sitting in Florida waiting for our governor uh, who is a prize to uh, finally decide that he was going to shut the state down because other states were already shutting down and other states that were Republican were shutting down at this point. And it just kind of was like inevitable that it would happen. And I knew that there were a lot of people in our community who were barely making it to the end of the week as it was, you know, before the pandemic that were relying on free lunch and breakfast at their child's school, right? Which which counts for 10 meals a week. So suddenly, you know, imagine you have to now provide this extra 10 meals a week to one, two, three children. That that really adds up. That's very stressful. And obviously Florida also is very reliant on things like the hospitality industry. So a lot of people work in hospitality. A lot of people work on uh, tips, on hourly wages, and that was going away. And so um, I wound up, uh, you know, saying, okay, we've got this like system and I want to be able to sort of open it up and simplify it so that, uh, it's only financial at this point because we're not supposed to be in contact with each other. Right. Uh, we have to be socially distant and, uh, there's gotta be like an easy way to still connect people, um, at a time of disconnection. And so, I, I'm not a technologically savvy person, but I went on Google Forms and I created two forms, the Give Help and the Get Help form. And they were very simple. They asked like maybe five or six questions each. And um, and then I just posted the links with a 40-second video on my Instagram and Facebook page, thinking that only the people that are in my community or people that I you know know Um, And I didn't have like a big social media following at that point, just really honestly, like people locally who I knew Um, and a few people like Chelsea Handler, who I just, it's a long story, but how we met, you know, 
who I'd known for for years before this. And um, I posted the video, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and I was just completely floored because uh, Chelsea reposted the video with the links, uh, which caused Maria Shriver to repost it and Deborah Messing to repost it and Kristen Bell to repost it. And it just kind of started going completely insane and viral. And it pun intended, actually. And it went all around the world and came back. And um, we had people filling out forms from so many different countries with so many different area codes and country codes. And um, it was pretty amazing. You know, I think definitely it was like timing as well, because we were first to market, if you will. But I also think that the way that we, you know, again, accidentally really designed this mutual aid organization is that it wasn't designed to just be like, pandemic of love is an intermediary like we're the middleman right it wasn't like hey donate to us and then we'll find somebody need and give it to them on your behalf but rather you know you're you're willing to pay somebody's utility bill i have a person in your zip code that needs their utility bill paid i'm going to connect the two of you by email by phone however you as the donor decided you want to be connected And you're going to have to have a conversation with that person. Where you take that conversation is up to you. It could be as simple as send me your Venmo and I'll send you the money. It could be, you know, send me your bill and I'll pay it directly. Or it could be, hey, let me get to know you. What do you need? You know, what's going on? How how are you doing? Let me check in on you every once in a while. Two full-on friendships that have formed um, between people that otherwise honestly would never have met under any other circumstance because they may live in the same zip code or in the same general area or in the same state, but, um, you know, they live very different lives and we tend to stick to our own bubbles, you know? Um, and, and, and we, we don't like to, uh, go outside of sort of this comfort zone that we have. Uh, we like to talk to people who think like we do. We like to engage with people who are in the same, you know, mind frame as we are, sometimes in the same sort of general socioeconomic status that we're in, right? Or class, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 so very rarely do we kind of put ourselves in this position of discomfort. Um, and which, you know, is is a really nice analogy as well taking it back to the cushion and, and, and when I started to meditate again. Um, but pandemic love forced people to do that. They forced uh, Biden voters to connect with Trump supporters. They, it forced people who were racist to connect with, um, you know, a black donor and to accept help from somebody that they have issues with for the color of their skin. It forced people, you know, generally generationally to connect, you know, seniors, octogenarians with, you know, with 20 year olds, which was really um, a delight as well. And, and it was this beautiful sort of way to bring people together um, and show people in, in this very harrowing time uh, and stressful time, how we really are so alike and that there's more that connects us as cheesy as that sounds. And, you know, and fast forward to today, just to share the statistics with you, Pandemic of Love has um, matched over 2 million people. We're in 16 countries with 280 chapters. We have over 4,000 volunteers, um, none of whom get paid. I don't get paid to do what I do either. Um, and we have transacted, uh, or not, I shouldn't say we, the donors have transacted directly with the recipients over $60 million since March of 2020. Wow. Six zero. Pretty incredible. That's unbelievable. That's totally unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the, the several times that, that you've connected me with somebody um, in need, and I participate a little bit in Pandemic of Love. And by the way, I thought Shelly, as my friend, was just going to connect me with like the local New York volunteer. She actually made the connections herself in both those cases. So I don't think you've made all 2 million connections, no. <laughs> but I bet you've made like four or 500,000. She's kind of no. that active. Um, exactly what you're saying. I mean, uh, 
I didn't have to, I, I don't think I had to, you know, participate with somebody who had massive political differences with me, but you do have to hear somebody's stories. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what gets people stuck, you know, because some of it feels very interpersonal. Some of it feels very like bad luck. A lot of it feels very systemic. You know, one of the things that I discovered, and I think I already knew this and how like, um, you know, it's really expensive to be poor, you know, like the, yeah. the people I helped with were like, you know, I, I laid on my, my T-Mobile payment and, you know, they charge me a fee every month. And one woman said they won't even let me pay off the whole bill, you know, like it's, I mean, it's really, it's mm -hmm. really a trap. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, so you're, what you're describing is this really hopeful take on kind of what we might call bodhisattva practice, right? You open your heart, yeah. you have an interpersonal connection, you hear something outside of your egoic comfort zone and you generate compassion and action and agency yeah. develops from that. Yeah. Um, I also just wonder how much of it brings about through hearing people's stories, this sense of like that notion so there's one part which is this this fear this hoarding mentality of like i will never have enough the other part seems to be we have really weird notions of who deserves mm. to be okay you know i was thinking about this because now that we're having this conversation a big thing that happened on twitter in the last 24 hours is elon musk just started yeah. attacking bernie sanders for I no freaking that. reason and I saw that. basically said, I, I forget you're still alive, which is not right. a good thing to say to the one of the elder statesmen of, you know, the right. Senate, you know. Yeah. Um, and then said, Bernie, you're you're a you're a taker. I'm a maker or you're a taker, not a maker. And so there's this. Th I mean, I think Elon Musk made a nice car, you know, but he's also it's kind of like DuckTales now between him and Jeff Bezos. You remember the plot of DuckTales, yeah. the cartoon where yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the two richest ducks in the world are always yeah. at each other's throats. So he's one of the two richest ducks in the world. And um, he's really railing against the idea of any kind of public help for anybody, you know. Right. And, and what what really scared me about this is he was such a jerk for no reason um, and I'll, I'm saying that just by the standards of how you talk to another person, yeah. he was a jerk. Yeah, and, I agree. But a lot of people supported him as if $200,000 million yeah. is, act is actually something a person could come to deserve because right. they made a nice car. Right. And being stuck in poverty is actually something that another person deserves. So right. I just wonder, hmm. like this, this theory of like earning, you know, that you've yeah. earned your pain or you've earned your um, safety is, is such yeah. an odd way that we look in the world. So I, I wonder if that's come up for people in pandemic of love too, like realizing that people didn't actually earn their poverty in that. Well, sense it's really, deserving. that's really interesting that you say that because there have been a few times when people sort of people that I know personally who have that mentality of like, you know, here, here I am going to, you know, give to somebody who really should be able to like figure this out on their own, even in the worst of times. But they sort of like were doing me personally a favor. Like there are people that I knew from the corporate world who, you know, were like, you know, for you, Shelly, I'll donate to Pandemic of Love, you know, and I think that in their mind, they thought it was going to be as easy as just like, I'm going to write a check right. or I'm going to click, you know, donate because that's the easy way to do it. Right. And then just feel good about myself for five seconds and be done with it. Right. And somebody else deals with handling the money and distribute distributing it. And when they then realized, oh, wait a minute, I actually am going to have to make a phone call or have a conversation with somebody, this one woman comes to mind who, again, I've known this woman for 25 years. She's um, a very well-off, uh, successful entrepreneur who I will say is self-made and, you know, did not come from money. Nothing was handed to her, et cetera, et cetera. So her mentality is definitely like, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. Never mind that she's like white and that she 
you know, wasn't poor. She definitely was maybe like lower middle class or upper, but had, a you know, access to a great education and a stable family life and a home, you know, that her parents owned and didn't come from a broken family, et cetera, et cetera. But she doesn't perceive that to be privilege because she and I have had this discussion before. So putting all that aside, she wound up actually being connected with a person in her community who was middle class, very much middle class, still married, so not from a broken family, three kids, and did everything that in her book is what middle, you know, what families should be doing. You know, nobody ever handed me anything. So I I had a, uh, you know, I didn't overspend. I didn't live above my means. These people did not live above their means. They, uh, you know, had a safety net uh, where they had six months worth of savings. They had 401ks. They essentially were furloughed for so long. And the husband was working like in the cruise industry, which didn't reopen for a really long time. And, and Florida's, um, this happened to be in Florida because that's, you know, where I was, where I worked for many years. Um, the state of unemployment in Florida was abysmal. So it was like very bad. <laughs> and even if you were getting unemployment, it was really bad. It wasn't like in so some of the other states. conservative policies are problematic yes. in some way. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Like you they don't actually that. help people? No, no, not even people who are quote unquote doing the right thing. Right. And, you know, her perception, once she actually had a conversation with this woman and understood the situation, she was like, Oh, this is not at all what I thought in terms of like who we were going to be helping. And I'm like, well, what did you think it was going to be? And she said, well, I thought you were going to you know, introduce me to somebody who's already on like government assistance and blah, blah, blah. And like, she already had this like narrative, right? This conditioning, this lens that she views the world with. And we sort of were able to, I think, just change, even if we only changed her lens for that moment. But I'd like to believe that, you know, maybe I widened the aperture just a little bit for her um, and planted a seed with her that might be, you know, hopefully will be, you know, take root later on in some, at some point in her life. But, but she recognized and realized that, that, that not everybody, you know, that even people who are doing the right thing, quote unquote, in her book are, are have these times of need and that they need assistance and that the government was failing these people you know? Um, and, and that was like a big deal for her to say that, like, I don't understand why we don't have policies in place that help people like her. And I'm like, cause you, you know, like, who did you vote you for? Vote in the for? Last, like, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm like, you know, but I didn't want to make it political. So I just kind of, you know, was able to, to sort of skirt around that issue a little bit and talk to her about that. But, but, you know, it's just, I think part of the problem, because I also had this conversation this weekend. So I was at my father-in-law's celebration of life. My father-in-law passed away about seven weeks ago from COVID, actually, um, at a nursing home in Maryland. And we we had this really joyous and wonderful celebration of life that he would have approved of. And um, some of the family members who were there are uh, Republicans. They voted for Trump. And I wound up in deep conversation with one of the cousins for a really long time. And, you know, he, his perception, because he's worked really hard his entire life for, for everything that he's ever gotten, nothing was handed to him, et cetera, et cetera, was that, you know, the democratic policies are to hand things out to people. And that every there there was no such thing as as human rights. You know, why is it a right to get health care? Why is it a right to have this? Why is it a right to have that? That we should all just work really, really hard. And so I just, you know, sort of tried to talk about or frame it in a way of like a board game. Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know, imagine 
that we're playing a board game and that we all have to start from like square zero. And you're basically telling me that every single person that is born, not let's not even talk about this planet. Let's just talk about the United States, that every single person born in the United States starts from square zero. Is that accurate? And he was like, yeah. And I said, well, that's wrong. And I'll tell you why. And I basically started to explain to him that like many people start from behind that zero baseline, that start line, and that, you know, some people are minus 30 and some people are minus 20 and some people are minus 10 and that some people are plus 30. And I was saying to him, look, I don't have an issue with the fact that your kids, and by the way, also my child who is privileged started at plus 10 or plus 30, but I have a problem with the fact that people didn't even start at zero. And so if I have to knock myself back a few squares to bring, make sure that nobody ever starts below zero and that everybody has enough at the zero line, you know, and we went into this whole analogy and I think, I don't want to say I changed his mind because that would be like, you know, wow, that's pretty, you know, incredible to do in like 45 minutes. But I definitely, again, I think it's about constantly, you know, spreading these sort of little seeds where you help to create these shifts in people's thought, even if it's just for a moment where they're like, okay, let me pause to think about that. Or let's have a conversation, right? Because I don't think we do that anymore, Ethan. We don't, you know, we're, we're so, we're so polite in this country (laughs) and, and people will laugh when I say that. No, you're right. We are. We don't we don't talk about wealth inequality. We don't talk about our assumptions about things. And, you know, that's the point I always make, and especially about being a Dharma teacher in democracy, like the idea that you're not supposed to talk about things. Right. Democracy only works if people are talking about what they believe all the time. Yes. But we were we're not constantly. (laughs) Weren't you told as a child, like you don't talk about sex or politics or religion at the dinner table or at, you know, those are like topics you should never talk about yeah don't talk about anything that matters at the dinner table basically right and so what you're talking about the weather and you're talking (laughs) about whatever and you know culturally like i was born in israel we're not known to be polite right (laughs) we're actually known to be very (laughs) impolite very loud i don't have to (laughs) and very politically incorrect actually we say things like as they are and my husband and i have a running joke because like i'm the type of person that like we'll be sitting around like Thanksgiving with like his American family. And then like our, my Israeli contingency shows up and like, literally there'll be an elephant that's been in the room for 20 years that nobody talks about. And then the one Thanksgiving that I show up to, I'll be like, Hey, what's with the elephant in the room? And everybody will be like totally horrified because I'm just like, let's talk about it. You know, Hey, so what's happening with your addiction issues? Are you better? Or like, you know, Hey, what's going on with your, you know, uh, abusive relationship. Let's talk about it. Right. Right. But I mean, I think, you know, what you're doing with pandemic of love, it is getting people. It's very interpersonal. It's very conversational. You have to make a connection, but you're right. It's not electorally political. And when people think about electoral politics, they just think about Democrat versus Republican. And it goes back, you know, people's yeah. amygdalas get triggered like really quickly. Right. Yeah. And, and just, um, you know, then they're like critical race theory. I don't know what that is, but you know, critical race fear theory, of the know. unknown fear of right. the unknown. Yeah. But if you, if you use certain catchphrases, it catches people, it kind of ensnares us. Right. And then, but this is a way to actually get, it seems like this is the crucial part to me about seeing interdependence is getting somebody to empathize with the experience of somebody they do not know, you know, Correct. it's like proximity. It, yes. I mean, it would be the equivalent. We can't do this with the anti-vaxxer movement. Right. But it'd be the equivalent uh, pandemic of love of being like, okay, you're not into vaccines. How can I, you can't do this because the cause and conditions are not clear, but what if I could introduce you to a person who lives like, you know, 500 miles away, who's immunocompromised, who will not die through four degrees of connection. If you get the vaccine, like that to me is feels more like what pandemic of love is. And you're like, let me introduce you to this person. You're never going to know who you live in interdependence with. 
And right. Have or a let me introduce you to somebody who lost a family member due to COVID because right. they didn't want to get a vaccine. Right? right. Let's have a conversation there. And I think, yeah, I mean, but that's that to me is proximity. I mean, that's what changed my mind as an Israeli born into a very hawkish right wing family. You know, that's what changed my mind about um, how I feel about Palestinians and their their rights and their rights to have their own country and their right um, in some cases, you know, absolutely the right, the right to uh, the freedom to move about and the right of return. And, 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 you know, uh, I've been called a lot of bad names because of it uh, and told that I'm an anti-Semite and that I'm anti-Zionist. And that's fine if somebody wants to call me a name, but, um, you know, I had the opportunity to change my mind because I was able to go into uh, the occupied territories. I was able to sit uh, in homes with Palestinian families. I was able to hear their stories. I was able to hear stories from Israeli families who, um, you know, are are working towards uh, a new future, a better future, um, one that I feel like, you know, is possible but it's only possible through proximity. So when we build walls, which Israel literally has done, you know, it, it I think um, it separates us even further. It separates us even further and doesn't give us the opportunity to actually get to know the quote unquote, the other. Um, and that's that's where I think we are as a country now. We stick to our own. We don't want to get to know the other. We're not willing to be in difficult conversations. We don't even know how to have difficult conversations. Um, we shut down, you know, we yell, we tweet, but we're, we're not able to actually have a difficult conversation and understand that we can always get to sort of a common purpose or a common underlying thing that we can agree on. As, as different as our views might be, and that that could act as a starting point for us uh, to to move forward. Right, right. Um, yes, although it does seem like it's more, the burden should be more on people who are privileged to because they have more power and leverage to be that starting point than a person who's marginalized or oppressed. It doesn't, putting everybody yes. on the same level of responsibility yes. I would yes, of course, but that's you and I both know that that's not how the world works. Revolutions have not have very rarely started by people who are comfortable, right? And so, yeah, great for those of us that are conscious and willing to join the the ranks and the marches and the protests and to to do that. But I I, I think we would be foolish to think that um, it won't be, um, you know, started. Uh, and that that the sort of catalyst to what needs to happen won't start by those people who are actually suffering the most. Hmm. They have nothing to lose, right? Right, right. But so, they're gonna. So yeah, right. yeah. But but to say that the people who are suffering the most are the ones who need to listen, you know, is which is true. It's true for all. I mean, I think the Dharma is true that everybody needs to practice deep listening, and but it's just who is in a position to actually take take that on is is the interesting question yeah well again if you don't have enough if you're still in survival mode you're not able to have a clear head or or have the time or the luxury of being in thrive mode yeah and so really what the wellness space if you will has become is this like pursuit of thriving when you know we make this assumption that everybody wants to thrive. And it's like, no, no, no. Like some people are just still trying to survive. Right. And that's really, you know, I make all those points in the book. When most I talk wellness about influencers, most wellness influencers are not thriving. You can, you can tell that by the way they promote. <laughs> They're struggling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For for many reasons, Internally. for many reasons, but uh, yeah, definitely. But I think you know, I think we forget that we forget that, and and certainly I talk a lot about that, you know, in the book, which the subtitle is, you know, how self radical self care can change the world, because really the roots of self care were born in 
the civil rights movement. We're born in the feminist movement. And we need to um, we need to get back to the roots. We need to understand that self care really is an act of self preservation and survival, and an act of political resistance too. By the way, uh, which Audre Lorde uh, so beautifully wrote decades ago, um, and it's not what we think it is or what it's sort of become. You know what what's been hijacked by the industrial wellness complex that we're living in. Hmm. All right. Well, this was this was even a more radical conversation. I feel like um, uh, with Shelley Tegelski than than the one that got deleted. Um, I'm going to really ask everyone listening to really consider actually supporting Shelley's work per- first by um, um, purchasing this book, "Sit Down to Rise Up." Um, it's a really great book. It's it's really one of the ones that's that's worthy of um, your support. Um, also, checking out "Pandemic of Love," how you can get involved. Uh, with that on either side, um, especially if you're somebody who can give. And if you're Elon Musk, um, <laughs> I would like you to donate $199 billion to Pandemic of Love um, and stop dunking on older people who've been doing good work their entire lives. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, and and Shelly, as you and I are people somewhere in the middle who for me, I've been doing somewhat good work and you've been doing very good work. Um, I just want to say thanks say so much <laughs> and, uh, and hope you'll come back to, cause we have a lot more to talk about clearly, cause we have to cut this off early and, yeah, and we're both definitely. getting very passionate. I wanted to ask if pandemic of love is going to is- Israel and Palestine, cause that would be pretty amazing. Um, we actually, uh, we don't have chapters there. We do support some organizations that are already on the ground. It is very hard to um, to get um, goods and services into, you know, and across uh, the border, so to speak. And so we do have a lot of really great tangible ways to, to support those communities and also support a lot of the communities in this uh, in this country. Like we, we have... Uh, you know, in the month of November, it's Indigenous Peoples Month. So if you're interested in supporting um, individuals uh, on the Navajo Nation uh, Reservation or the Hopi Tribe uh, in the southwestern United States, you can actually purchase a barrel of fresh drinking water that gets delivered to somebody in the remote area of the tribe. Uh, 30% of individuals living on the reservation do not have access to clean or running water. So there's so many different ways other than just connecting with a person in need because we've partnered with so many great organizations that are actually in the trenches every day doing great work. So check out the website. We have a whole partnership page and you can learn more. Awesome. And definitely check out the book, Sit Down to Rise Up with uh, Shelly Tegelski. And for those of you who don't know how to spell her last name, it's T-Y-G-I-E-L-S-K-I. And um, thanks so much again, Shelly, and uh, please do come back. And so thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn, and we'll see you next time. 